Welcome to the Painter by Quarterly Slush Pile. Uh, thank you for joining us today. We're here to be transparent about our editorial board process, and we have a piece of fiction to discuss with you today. Uh, that piece of fiction will live on our Painter by Quarterly podcast pages, which is at pbqmag.org and then click on podcast and you'll get to read this story if you'd like to read before we discuss. But before we get there, I have so much to say. And one of those things is, I'm always so excited when we're doing something new. Today is also new because we, are, we have commandeered another professor's office. Oh, cool. <laughs> we're, our mobile studios uh, poor Joe Zhang is currently homeless, which means we are too. Uh, as the audio studios building gets renovated. We're we're getting um, we're having to find different different places in which to hang out. So we're not even in the concrete conference room that we usually are. We actually have windows today. What? Um, what? Yeah, yeah, we have windows. Um, still cinder block walls, but windows and a blackboard and a little bit of art and, and lots and lots and lots of stuff in somebody else's office. I feel very much like we've broken in, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. such is life. Um, so I'm Kathleen Volk Miller and I, um, run the graduate program in publishing here at Drexel University and, um, I write essays, and I think I do have to say that um, my I have a piece that just came out in an anthology last week. Um, the anthology is called Oprah's Book of Starting Over. Yeah. My, <laughs> my essay is the penultimate essay in the collection. So it's kind of fun, you know, kind of cool. Um, so that happens. And um, with me in the class, in the office today, um, is Denise Gurin, who it's only your second podcast, right? Second yeah. Well, tell us about you awesome. and your second podcast. Hi, Denise. Podcast, right? Hi, Denise. Hi. Um, I'm a photographer by day, and I've been um, on the editing staff for PBQ for, I think, almost a year now. Wow. Yeah, Congratulations. Time flies so, when you are having a blast. Yes, yes. My name is Tim Fitz, and I'm a short story writer and novelist. Um, I'm happy to say that my novel in Korea is coming out next week, um, supposedly. <laughs> it seems like the real thing is some final stages, things going on. And, um, and I teach here at Drexel, along with over 10,000 other schools. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and next to Tim and Kathy is uh, Sarah Akett, and I am a third-year English major at Drexel, and I'm the current editorial assistant for PBQ. Woohoo! And of course, we have Joe with us today, Hello. performing the audio duties mobily. He's very talented. Hi, Marion. Hello, greetings, Philadelphia. This is outer space. I'm dialing in. <laughs> With a glass of red wine in one hand, a pumpkin handle, candle lit in, uh, on my table in front of me, um, and a plastic pumpkin uh, also in front of me in honor of Halloween, because we don't actually celebrate Halloween in Abu Dhabi. Um, I 
I'm the director of the writing program here at NYU and Abu Dhabi. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I've been feeling a little clobbered by the administrative workload of running a writing program. Um, so I, I wanted to tell you, you know, what I've been writing or what I've been working on, but what I've actually been working on is trying to figure out a collaboration with a visiting artist here whose name is Stu, who is a singer, songwriter, and performer who, um, he and his collaborator Heidi Rodewald, um, performed Passing Strange, which was a Broadway show a couple years back, where he, um, it was a sort of like really invigorating uh, depiction of a, a young person, you know, his coming of age story and written all under the influence of, of great artists. Um, he's got a new show, or rather, uh, a fairly new show called Notes of a Native Song. So they're here at Abu Dhabi this week performing Notes of a Native Song, which is based on James Baldwin's work or inspired by Baldwin's work. Um, and they're working on a, yet another new play called The Mosquito Net. And they're literally on campus devising this play, developing this play. And they have agreed to let all 120 of our first year writing students sit to sit in the black box theater while they create this play. So our students are going to be like participant observers of this theatrical creative process. And so this just happened, which is part of the reason why I'm a little late to our team. <laughs> I just wanted to share that with you because man, you know, this, this writing life, it takes many forms, whether you're running a program or running around and not writing enough, but it's, it's great to be connected up with artists in this way. So that's what I have to say. Fabulous. Well, the <laughs> students get to influence the play and how it, um, I, you know, I, I don't know. And I was, when I was speaking to Stu, I was like, you, you realize I'm not bringing five people. <laughs> I'm bringing like two chunks of more than 50, right? So I've got 50 in one group and 70 in another. And he was like, don't worry about it. I, I, I want to interact with them. I love an audience and um, I think he's sort of eager to like get live feedback on the stuff that sure. he and his ensemble are producing, which, you know, it, and it's a first year writing class. They're, you know, writing papers and thinking about a research paper, right? So, so what's the link there? I think it's going to be having students watch an artist's process, right? Watch somebody actually be in this creative decision-making mode and taking an audience and the reaction of the audience in mind as they're making those decisions right like so that I'm really really eager to see you know what's the mantra like every 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 writer needs a reader right you know yeah. and I guess we're performing that in this sort of live wacky workshoppy experiment yeah. so stay tuned I'll report back let you know how it goes absolutely and we all know that even do. right we all know even something as small as a single poem and you read it aloud to an audience feels different and you can and you can learn something from performing it right so i think that's terrific um well i'm going to switch gears entirely twice because i, I think we need to vote on something um right, well. tim, fitz, tim fitz has been continuing his tasty cake experiments but, ah. I, I am here today to publicly say that he's been doing it all wrong and i didn't mm. want to be hypercritical on on the first uh several conversations but um, he's been eating freaking pies. <laughs> okay? Nobody the name pies. of this company is Tasty Cake. No one eats the pies. The pies are not the thing. No, I'm telling you, they're a diehard pie eaters. 
pie our diehard tasty cake pie eater it is well. it is the cake <laughs> so today i have bought brought um tim the classic crimpet the butterscotch coated crimpet which is oh my older God, than time so hopefully this exact package is not and then i also bought him the the candy cakes because okay. those those are the thing so what we have to put on before we go further is whether tim should start putting up his comments and his family's comments on the pbq news feed <laughs> people are i think what you know you did already tell us all some of these pie experience have gone yes and and i think they could work on the pbq news feed and any anybody, what, do you, what do you guys think i think we should tweet them immediately okay i can confidently say that at 37 grams of happened, sugar uh, i'll put that you don't read the package tim <laughs> yeah can't go wrong with 37 <laughs> Put it in your mouth. <laughs> you open the package and you put it in your mouth. That's it. Okay. All right. So stay tuned. Um, so now to the work at hand. Today we have a piece of fiction. And oh my goodness, I should have asked this person for a phonetic spelling of her name. Zavaljevic. Zavaljevic. So this is Aggie Zavaljevic. I'm guessing. Thank you for that, Mayor. And the story is called White. Um, would anybody care to do a synopsis? I can if, if nobody else wants. So this story is about a couple who um, gave birth far too prematurely and their baby died. Mm -hmm. uh, mom is an artist and the story is told much more through Robert, the, the husband slash father's point of view. Um, during their recuperation time, they uh, visit Laura's parent, parents for an extended visit. And a lot of the story um, is told while they're visiting the parents. And I think that's about it for synopsis. Is there anything else we need to know moving forward? I think so. That's the basic uh, plot line here. Okay. So, so who'd like to start? Remember, reader, well, you can go read if you'd like. Well, I, you know what? It's funny. I wonder if it's possible, right, to um, maybe hear the first two paragraphs. And I know it's it's going to be on the um in the show notes but i don't know i feel like there's a lovely incantation or incantatory aspect when we when we hear work aloud so would somebody be willing maybe just to read the first few paragraphs absolutely okay i'll do it white <laughs> before summer's end they would be parents of a dead child while pregnant laura had sculpted gigantic pink breast jars and she trimmed their lids into smooth, shallow domes with nipple-like knobs and exhibited them in the dining room. Robert interpreted Laura's art pieces as a guidebook to his wife's essence, as the fragments of her psyche. 
She had thrown tall ceramic cylinders on the potter's wheel, the exotic phallic trees towering over their living room. She cooked like a painter, eggplant for purple, fresh basil for green, cold tomato soup for red, butter squash stew for yellow, honeydew melon for orange. She constructed ceiling-high transparent cocoons of homemade paper. They were her secret rooms for transformation, and she hung them in the basement by the washer and enveloped herself with their rustling. She ripened last summer in 15-minute cycles while she washed her maternity dresses on delicate. He had sometimes detected the scents of June or July on the sun-dried dresses she wore in August. She had decorated the nursery, whitewashed walls, white cotton sheets, a cloud mobile made of lamb's wool, the dream room. Robert took a leave of absence from his teaching job to work on a book, but mostly puttered around the house retracing Laura's footsteps, looking at her scattered things, drawings, letters, art exhibit flyers, photos, her ceramic coffee cup, diary. He never touched anything, just investigated their nature, shape, or location, and classified them in his head as one would museum pieces. So that's the first two paragraphs. And I, and I think you were dead right, Marion. It really does um, give us a great feel for the tone of the piece. That tone is very consistent. And um, the uh, lush and exuberant details and the neurosis of people before they have the first. <laughs> Every detail matters. Yeah. Yeah. And you're just yeah. crazy with expectations and yeah. Making everything child proof and pink and and then the child comes and poops all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> you know what though the surprise though of, of this beginning is in the just the, like a few inches below where we stopped reading, which is um, and that's how he remembered that summer, only those months before baby's death, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so you're, it, the, the author is sort of setting you up. Aggie's setting us up for this sense of life, this robustness, this burgeoning experience. And then it gets like yanked and torqued right at the end. And you're totally destabilized by the end of the beginning. Um, but the, yeah. you know what the, the first line is before summer's end they would be parents of a yeah. dead child yeah no you're absolutely right so that first the first line punches you in the face you get lulled into expectation and then reminded right of yeah the you know, metal like wait what what oh shit that's right you know like you've been like hoping it would go away <laughs> real and there it is right even with the food that like she cooked like a painter, it just, it's so, it's still so alive. And so you can kind of see her there and. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are great. I mean, the first paragraph you do also, you get a lot of um, sensory excitement with all the colors and the flavors. And I mean, she hits pretty much all of the, yeah, the five senses. I, I wonder a little bit about the honey melon for orange, that because honeydew is green. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, I noticed I know, that too. Right, yeah. I mean, that's just a little. That's just a little error. 
It does not. She meant cantaloupe, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, so I, Tim, I'm so glad you actually pointed to that because when I was reading through this piece, I was thinking about the last time um, we spoke about fiction together, and it was that um, that great piece where the raccoon falls through the ceiling, right. and um, th it, that actually was a moment right where, where I, in our discussion I, I thought, wow, Tim fits naturalist and <laughs> fiction fiction critic extraordinaire, right? And I thought as I was reading this, like there was a like a sort of wink at this um this aspect of your interest because of the badger right so a few pages yeah. into the story right the robert the um, male character is driving right and comes across a, a badger um and i i want to talk about the badger briefly because i want to make sure I'm, I'm grasping the sort of arc of this which is um they they you know they've experienced the death of their um child they're on a visit to their parents, her parents' house, her right? Parents. And, yeah. and then, and then they're on the way back. Are they on the way back together, or is it just a drive by? by it's just a drive. Robert's just going to the supermarket. Yeah, uh, that's what it they're is. They're in Wisconsin, and Robert's just going to the store. And I do think, you know, there he's out of his element in Wisconsin. As part of it, they're in this very rural. Um, the piece grows very static, like where we're, we're apprised of the action. The sole action is baby dies, right? Mm -hmm. And now we watch Robert and Laura attempt to recover or, or process first, I guess. Yeah. Um, and part of that is uh, to go to her parents' house for an extended stay in Wisconsin in the dead of winter. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and the and the piece is very static insofar as they're drinking peppermint tea by the fire and mm -hmm. and cooking elaborate meals and Laura's still making things and leaving her art around the house. I think that's a kind of neat core mm -hmm. for that character. Mm -hmm. She works in many mediums, um, found objects and and. Uh, paint and paper and right and she hasn't stopped processing I, I noticed mm -hmm. that throughout the piece like she continues she processes being pregnant the growing baby and she continues to process through the death through her art mm -hmm. um, kind of lost with Robert like his yeah his his observation of it all is very cold feels very cold to me mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm not I kind of want to know what he's thinking about, um, but also that kind of maybe his character really speaks of how we deal with a lost child. It's like something that's very difficult for people to talk about, and and I, you kind of see that with the parents. There's a great line um, about uh, sometimes the house cat rubbed against his leg or looked at him across the room as if comparing their rank, the quality of their mutual detachment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like the whole visit to the parents is the is kind of how an outsider deals with a, a child loss. Right. And it's very, it's very, it's very painful and very quiet and unspoken. Right. I think the distance between Robert and the situation is very believable because when I mean it is sort of strange when you're having a first child and you have to kind of make up things to do to connect yourself. Because the baby's not inside you, it's inside your wife or your partner, whoever. Um, and so everything is about 
the person carrying the baby. So you have to do things to connect yourself, make sure you're involved. And I mean, even if it's like shopping or cooking or something to, um, I, I don't know, it's because it's just a strange place to be in a way, even when the baby arrives, um, the baby always wants the mother and you know, that's got to feed from the yeah. mother. And then you have to sort of go out of your way to make sure you're playing with the child and, <laughs> and bond with the child and do things. Yeah, it's a depressingly long time before the baby even knows dad's voice, right? The, the mm -hmm. baby comes mm -hmm. and immediately knows mom. But I remember being really sad by that even as a woman, that it takes a long, like 30 days or something before the baby really even recognizes dad as dad. So anyway, I thought in the writing of this that it was a super interesting choice that makes a lot of sense with the tone. I mean, I guess it's a chicken or the egg thing. Does it have this tone because it's through Robert? But Robert really isn't doing much, Denise. Like you were saying, like what is Robert doing? He's, he's observing Laura. That's all he's really doing. And right now he's not even working. He's taking a sabbatical of some sort. And he just, even before the death occurs, he just follows her around, right? And it's her family's home. And her, you know, he's, mm -hmm. he's absolutely just there for the ride, in a way. It is it's, funny. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say it's disappointing that we don't get more from Robert. Because I think, I do think that his silence and his ability to hold back from expressing his grief shows his strength. And I think even his love for Laura. But again, like, as a reader, it's disappointing to not hear what he's thinking. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to know, and I, 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 also there's a couple lines where her parents are sort of keeping them away from each other. I was wondering, and, and that why. was that was. I, I want to know more about that and why they needed to protect the the couple from each other, the couple that has experienced this loss, and and she seems so singular in her process with, with without him, and and what does he feel about that? Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm always, when we do fiction, I'm always in such a, a twist over what to reveal, you know? Mm -hmm. But at a certain point in the story, we learn that um, she made herself a cradle. Yeah. She isn't um, sleeping with him. She isn't even yeah. sleeping with Robert, right? Yeah. And, and so there is this great separateness. Um, can you, can anybody find that section? I know what you're talking about. I know that Robert ends up hanging out with dad and, and Laura hangs out with mom, that you feel there was a spot where the parents are really actually, or just making it easy for them to be apart. I think, yes. right? There's a yeah. Line. Yeah, right? Yeah. Her parents acted as their chaperones in bereavement, protecting them from each other until they were out of danger. Yeah. Right. So, right. It explicitly states that they're keeping them from each other. Yeah, but that makes sense given. Okay, if we if we think about the poem slash, um, like, you know, art piece of the empty boxes that he finds, right? Where it's like empty boxes with the the square with the single word on top: grief. Who is to blame? Sorrow. I surrender. Like she's she's. I mean, it's. Hmm. Like, I want to say two things about this. One, this artist's art is fascinatingly consistent, right? Around being like empty containers or comments on being or something. Mm -hmm. 
you know, and, and it's in that poem slash those empty boxes that he sort of, you know, dumps on the floor um, that we get that who is to blame. And it could be pointing at herself, but it could also be pointing at him, right? So that natural human instinct for, for narrative or for closure or for a reason why things happen can easily, I imagine, blend into a kind of blaming for their predicament. And maybe that's what the parents are trying to protect them from. Mm-hmm. But again, I just wanted to say about her art, like it's fascinating from the start, like the cocoons in the basement, right? And the, and then that, if I'm, if I'm remembering it right, there's a white, there's a, uh, like a, a nightgown taped to the wall with these like milk, you know, plastic yeah. milk things dripping into an ice. I mean, that, that's so weird and wonderfully abstract. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's kind of cool that um, the images that get the most description and the ones that will linger after are of her art, not, not so much moments. Like I'm saying, nothing happens, right? This is this really passive story. We do get to reflectively look back on when the baby had to be born and, and passed and they visited with the baby and all of that. But I don't think those images have the same staying power as some of the art that she makes. Yeah, exactly. And I, and the last thing I want to say about that too is like from the start, I mean, granted Robert isn't like explicitly narrating his own psychological dilemma slash, you know, reflecting on his predicament. He's telling the story of, of this moment. Right. And, but we learn a ton about their relationship, the way he's sort of like just observing her art, right. Like moving Mm -hmm. through the house and observing her art. Like there's, there's distance there, but there's also a kind of like awe and genuflection. Yeah, yeah. Like that she's almost like a museum piece that her right. whole, like, yeah. He was left in the empty house, guardian of an art gallery after closing time. She goes to therapy, a yoga class, a self-defense class, a workshop, an empty cradle support group, and he stays alone in the house. Mm-hmm. Ouch. So, I guess, I mean, let's go ahead. I guess we kind of have to, right, again, with me wanting to protect the ending, but um, can we do a, a reading of what we're supposed to think? So they, they, they're off to visit the parents. They've had all this time. And they come back to their home. And they're both kind of glad to be home. Even though home is where they left in such a state of grief, right? And then I think there's a hugely symbolic moment when he says, let's take down the dress. There's still a maternity dress on the line from last summer, and it's now after Christmas, mm-hmm. right? And um, they took it down together. Laura helped him to get it down. They carried the dress between them toward the house. Like a very, very much a moment of their healing is how I read that. Yeah, that they're they're starting to move forward together. Right. Right. So everybody has that same read because that's how I read it as well. I, read it I was a little worried for them when he spoke about the cradle that she made and then yeah. wonder, was wondering whether they would sleep together when they got back. And then he does say alone in the bed that winter night, 
you know, mm-hmm. with a cradle, which led me to think that she, again, is not even on the return from the parents, that she's not, she's still not with him. And that hopefully, you know, I, I felt hopeful at the end that maybe they could. Yeah, I think. the dress connected again. Yeah. I worry a little bit about the whole thing being so much about their experience. I mean, I'm, it starts off, you find out the baby is going to be born dead. And then it's, I'm not. So I had a story in graduate school where my professor liked the story until he got to the very last line and he said, the problem is I'm not sure if you earned the ending. It was like a kick in the stomach. But it was true, and it didn't earn the ending. And I wonder, and I feel like you start off with a line that big, you still have to earn it all the way through. And I, I going back to the that, I wonder, you know, looking at that paragraph, it feels, I feel like if you have a badger in the middle of the road and he gets out and walks it, it just doesn't seem to be, it feels like that paragraph could be cut. Mm-hmm. But there, and it's kind of like, in my mind, a little microcosm of the story here's something that's happening and then you're kind of left just how it how you expect it to end the badger's going to walk away he's not going to he didn't hit the badger and drag it or he didn't get caught up in his car or he didn't have some interaction it was just this moment which is interesting for the person in the car it's real interesting for the person in the car not so interesting for the friend he tells it to (laughs) i mean <laughs> the badger comes up again. Yes, it's what made I was me kidding. think it's some sort of metaphor too, right? So, for how Robert is feeling. So but like, I'm going to go ahead and say when he brings the badger back up, it felt a, a bit overwrought to me. Yeah, uh, Sarah just said forced, and I felt like that was a rather overwrought moment. Mm-hmm. In case you didn't get the meaning of the badger, here's some more, and and that graph the language in it is is a little over much um i don't know if i should read it or not but um he thought of the badger marching through the snow the white mark on its forehead moving through the darkness a living creature striding through the snowdrifts leaving tracks in a frozen world he found comfort in it and at last slipped into soundless dream yeah, I th- that type of over romanticization of animals. I mean, th- that's just what the badger does. Just he's just looking for It's yeah. just I think I mean it's yeah. I don't see any. I felt like what was stronger that told me more about Robert was the different signs that he saw. Like mm-hmm. all these can be iced. Just ask. Like, mm-hmm. things like Illinois welcomes you. Please buckle up. Like the little signs that he kind of noticed throughout, mm-hmm. I felt told me more about him than the badger. Like his, like what he of, notices, what he notices, yeah. and how kind of ridiculous that can seem. A sign like that can seem when you're in a hospital and your child, your baby, has died. Like just little right. things like that, and that made me feel more connected to him than than the badger did. But I feel like the the baby has to be more than just about their grief. It has to be. Have to has to reach out off the page into somewhere else that pertains to the to the I don't know to has to be more than just about their grief. I mean, I I find myself thinking, is this about the writer's experience working through it? And 
if it's fiction, it's different than nonfiction mm-hmm. because it has to represent. So I'm not sure what it represents. I'm not sure what the figurative language is of the dead baby because just because it starts off that way and I know what's going to happen and I'm expecting by the second sentence that it's going to be about, be about the grieving process. And then it's about the grieving process. And it's sad. But, you know, and if it's a real, real people, then it's, you know, it's different because these are real people going through it. But when they're characters, you know, we're kind of sociopaths when we think about characters. We can, we like seeing characters getting killed off. Mm-hmm. You can kill yeah. off a character and you go, like, yeah, they died. You know, Joyce Carol Oates' stories. The girl gets dragged off by a psychopath or raped and murdered. You think, okay. I mean, yeah. it's a story, so we don't have the same emotional connection. And so we're sort of pulled in to have this emotional connection. And then it, and then the surprises kind of fail to appear. That makes sense. Yeah. Lots of good things going along on the way. Right. A lot of things are working. Right. And I do think we're more judgy. I don't know if I should use that word, but when it's a fictional person, then when it's a human being in their story, um, uh, when she came back home and stitched the pillow out of the hair that she shorn from her own, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was way a lot for me. I I was uh, having a hard time, not, not with an eye, not having an eye roll. The whole, um, the entire uh, part where she shaved her head um, turned me off as well. Even before she sewed the pillow, just when she cut her hair, um, I just felt like it was a trite metaphor for, you know. Yeah. Well, we've certainly seen that before, right? A person goes through some kind of psychological trauma and they shave their head. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's not. I have to get them like every six weeks in college. (laughs) 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 So I feel like some of the metaphors in here are forced, um, but some of them are great. Right. Like, like uh, how Denise said, um, the signs. Mm-hmm. That was great. It was just so natural. Um, right. And it worked really well. Right. Certain details of the, the healthy choice uh, dinners piling mm-hmm. up in the trash, yeah. you know, when, the, when they're still v- living very separate lives. You know, that's such a specific, concrete detail. It's great. I mean, I do like the distance between the the couple when it happens because I mean that that's an interesting phenomenon where sometimes people see as only one person's allowed to grieve for a lost baby just because the woman's carrying it, and of course it's not the case. Um, but you know, maybe there are two different types of grief. You know, that's probably that's probably happening. Mm-hmm. Sure. Have the physical yeah. grief too. Sure. I mean, there would be among two women who lost babies at the same exact age, right? Yeah. Uh, the it's it's two different people are processing. Yeah. Right. Even if it's the and, same loss. And right. the parents, I really, I felt really connected to that part. Kind of mm-hmm. them visiting the parents and how the parents were treating them with this sort of fragility mm-hmm. and and was food and gardening and walking mm-hmm. and, you know, always kind of circling around the grief, but never, ever addressing it. And he, at some point, Robert says that he felt like it was like not gracious anymore to even bring it up. And mm-hmm. that speaks a lot to that, the situation that they're in. It's mm-hmm. so hard to talk about. And what can, what can you say? 
pray. Um, I thought that was that was really um, that that worked really well for me. Yeah, I feel like this kind of interesting commentary on like the hell what happens when the children of helicopter parents grow up, and even when they experience mm. grief, they're going to be circling and making sure mm-hmm. you're okay, and how awful that would be. Uh, yeah, constantly right. offered a Kleenex and. Yeah, but I mean, they went to visit. Of course, the parents are going to yeah. offer yeah. the pepper and sure. tea. I, yeah. Yeah. I don't. But I didn't so see them as helicopter parents. So. But it, it, yeah, you would go back to your parents. You would, you know, it's not unnatural, but it would just. You, you would think it might make things easier, but it probably does not make things easier. <laughs> well, not for Robert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they were happy to be home after they left. So. Yeah, they were happy to get back home, which is a good sign. Yeah. Um, guys, I think we really need to start narrowing this conversation into a, a, a voting situation. And now that we have to vote yet, but we have to start getting to the vote, I think. Um, I think Sarah might have summed it up really well for me. I think there's so much good in here, but I also want to take out a red at, at, at many moments. Um, there's just, it, it's just 20% over, overdone. Mm-hmm. You know? um, Tim, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you said that maybe it was that ending isn't deserved. Is that maybe not the ending, but after the, this first line, I'm not sure if the first line is maybe earned because it doesn't go beyond a family grieving. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's a uneven grieving, uh, grieving between uh, the couple and Robert's left out of it and we get, but it's still, I'm not sure if it is surprising in any way or speaks beyond the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I remember, on not, at the morning of 9-11, I remember thinking of how useless boring stories are, or stories that don't speak to outside a family unit or even the country. These stories have to do more. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like America was sleepwalking for a long mm-hmm. time before 9-11, and that you just have to have it in some way. It can be very subtle, or probably subtle, but in some way it has to, to do bigger things. It's just a hard, you know, it's a difficult ask of a short story but still um and i think this does this story does speak to that family but i'm not sure once i read that first line if i have a trend any sort of transformation mm-hmm. uh-huh. it, that i care too much about right you know so i'm not sure if it's i think starting it off with that one that line could, could go dramatically one direction or the other I'm not sure if it lives up to that person. Yeah, I'm not a fan of starting with that line. Mm-hmm. It, it it sets me up to not to yeah. like I don't know how it to say it. Awesome. Like I don't. I mean, that's like a really sad thing. Mm-hmm. So okay, you got me right. Yeah, like there's yeah, somehow yeah, yeah. Moving it would be. Would I'm wondering. Really well. Yeah. When I read that first line, I think I might up with that. Balance out what's going on. Right. Unless it's gonna really just make me turn me on the whole day, thinking about stuff. Yeah. Like replaying scenes and doing all that stuff that a great story does. Right. 
I feel like the author was trying not to make that that sentence like a shock value. Mm. However, I feel like it was poorly executed, as you said. So, I'm not putting it later in the story. It's it's just there. Let's move on. Um, but you don't really move on. You're kind of stuck on that, right. just like <laughs> Robert and Laura. Right. So. How can right? How can it have shock value if it starts with it? Right? Yeah, yeah. Which is why, which is why I feel like they put it here, but yeah, to not make it so trivial. But mm-hmm. I don't think that could ever be well, I, right. I right, it could never either. be trivial. It's powerful that. enough, right? Yeah. I want to jump in and say two things. One is American Beauty, right? Remember the film American Beauty from a million years ago? It actually starts with Kevin Spacey's character announcing that he's dead, right? And then you find yourself like falling for the narrative and falling for him over the course of the movie forgetting that he's dead until like the last 10 minutes or so and you're like oh shit he's gonna die (laughs) right so you've got that like um arc of experience in in that film um so i kind of get why this this writer would start with that line but then i think the essay the um the story falls short of the mark because of, of what tim's been saying like fiction short stories like in the stories that they tell are always pointing at this other thing. And I don't know if it's another thing outside of the story itself, right. Or something bigger in the culture, as much as it's like, like pointing to the maneuvers of storying, right. Like that you're actually able to trust the architecture of the story as it unfolds. So you're falling, like falling in love with the, the author's, um, craft and then forgetting the craftsmanship right as that's happening so that you're in the world of of the piece and i think with the critique of the metaphors critique of some of these like slightly clunky lines like i'm aware of the author in a way that makes me fall out of the world Mm -hmm. of the story in a way which that takes me back to that point somebody made i think it was tim about like 15 minutes ago uh and maybe kathy too this distinction between fiction and nonfiction right? If this were an essay, right, I think my orientation toward it would be so different than approaching it like a piece of fiction, a piece piece of, well, a short story, right? And thinking of it as a short story without this, like, center or without this other thing that it's pointing towards, I I can't, um, like, fully, fully lose myself in it, right? And although I'm close, like, I'm really, find myself really, like, moved in places but then also moved out of it in places so yeah for what it's worth i, I love listening to people talk about fiction you know, <laughs> really, really hard about the way fiction works thank you <laughs> denise any closing words before we vote um i think that mary really summed it up um I'm kind of, I, I just, I want more. I want more, I want more Robert. That's what I want. I wanted to, that was the, the mystery. The you want to know him better. I want to know him, yeah. I, I want, I wanted to know more there. Because um, there's so many beautiful, I, I want to see her art, really. <laughs> <laughs> I really fell in love with that. But um, I, I'd like to be less of an observer. Okay. And, and move. Okay. Marion, you said you a story needs to make you forget about the craft. And I thought it's interesting you said that because I feel like 
you when you're writing a story you know you don't really know how you get into it but you get into one of those flow zones where you look up from writing and the lights changed outside and the surround yeah yeah and and when you're reading a great story the same thing happens and yeah you don't get in there you're not really sure why you're not getting in there you know so it's uh, maybe this or this but sometimes it's a little mysterious too yeah how you yeah get there and how you as a reader and a writer I mean, certainly the more you think about it, thinking about it doesn't help it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. So, so I, I, you know what, Tim, I have to like footnote myself here, which is to say I'm, I picked up Oren Pamuk's book called The Naive and Sentimental Novelist. And it's a series of lectures that he's made about um, the subtitles, understanding what happens when we write and read novels. So that's been in the background of my head, but listening to you guys talk this through, like, I think you're absolutely right. Like, like the naive reader, the naive novelist is all about the flow of the story. But that sentimental novelist, the sentimental reader is really quite interested in, in craft, craftsmanship, right? The choices that the writer's making. But Pomuk's point is like, it's smack in the middle there, right? It's really those two things yeah. that happen yeah. where, the, where the sweet spot is, right? And sure. like that, it just seems like a really like useful way of thinking about both the practice of reading and the practice of writing fiction. Yeah. Okay. Shall we? Yeah. Okay. All right. Here we go. One, two, three, vote. Okay. We really hope we see this piece again someday, but we're going to reject it for now. Um, okay. yep. Thank you so much, Aggie Zvilchevic. Um, and thank you for letting us discuss it. And yeah. Uh, yeah. listeners would be so happy to hear what you have to say as well. Um, go to our Facebook event page that corresponds with this episode um, and let us know if you think we've made the right decision after you see this piece. Uh, so, we have a few more minutes, I think. Um, shall we talk about, so that we still end on a positive note, talk about um, what's making us happy this week? My stolen directly from Pop Cultural Happy Hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't care. Let her, let her come after me. It's, it's meant as only uh, the highest form of flattery. I love it. Okay, I'm going to go for music right now. Okay. And I'm listening to this band called Joseph, and it's Three Sisters. Two albums out called Native Dreamer Kin and I'm Alone, No You're Not. Um, and oh. I'm just totally into it, especially the first one. I really like the first Wait, one. Wait, you have a physical CD? I, I, in, I know. It's so weird. What? It's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool is that what this is? Wait, is. I can't eat it. I'm trying <laughs> to. What? Do you, can you hear it, Marion? I hear something. I hear something yeah, that sounds like it's a, it's a it's real form of music. Well, I got a new it's, car, and it doesn't have a mp3 player because it's an actual old a new car but an old car uh, new to you car <laughs> new to me car so i'm yeah. old that's CDs. terrific how did you get turned on to them um a friend of mine yeah um, yeah and i just really like them. cool super cool i have two things that are making me happy <laughs> of course you do tim <laughs> tasty cakes well, and uh, I, I went to the Highland Richards, um this sunday and although 
the apple picking was closed, they were selling apple cider. Uh, oh, nice. And this was the first time I've ever had one donut where the second donut was equally as good as the first donut. <laughs> that's, that's a life, lifetime high point. Nice. And, and the second thing that I'm really happy about is I'm watching a bunch of old Jerry Reed videos on YouTube where he's, he's uh, playing guitar with Chet Atkins. And there's an amazing, Chet Atkins is like the, you know, he's the king of finger picking. And there's a video where Jerry Reed's playing, he's just tearing it up. And then it's Jet, Chet Atkins' turn to do his run, and he can't get, and he realizes that Jerry Reed now, you can see at the moment on his fingers that he is now a student, where Jerry oh, Reed surpasses. Cool. It's really fantastic, and he was happy about it, too. They were, they were great friends. Yeah. So this was, a, this was something that I'm watching. Wow. Very cool. Okay, so, hmm. I am currently happy that a month into living together, me and my three other roommates not only get along, but I can confidently say that we are all friends. Yay! Yeah, Yay! It's a rarity, so yeah. It's <laughs> that should make you happy. We'll keep checking in on her and see how that goes. <laughs> Yay! For now! Yeah. Yay! Yay! Well, speaking of friends, I want to jump in and say I'm delighted to be expecting Jason Schneiderman here in Abu Dhabi. So yes. he's coming for a brief visit. I'm very stoked. That's um, not why he's not on air with us right now is because right now. he is in the air right Because now. he's mid-air, right? So he should be landing in a couple hours, and hopefully I'll see him shortly. Um, but the thing that made me very happy was this moment of delightful confusion. I picked up the a, a copy of Vanity Fair with Bruce Springsteen on the cover. Um, and I, I am forever, forever in awe of the photographs that Kathleen took. Um, with Bruce Springsteen when he was in town because he's looking directly in her eyes and they're having this moment of total communion. Um, but Vanity Fair did a review of his memoir and I like gobbled up the review, flipped the page, a couple pages later, there's a photo spread and this is the thing that made me very happy. There's a photo spread that made me very confused. So it is of Donald Trump in the White House with a nurse putting on prosthetic fingers and the, the lens is like really kind of hazy and fuzzy. And for a little while, I actually thought it was real. Like I thought, oh my mm, God, yeah. they have pictures of Donald Trump in the White House. And like, what's this? And they, they're putting on prosthetic fingers, prosthetic digits to extend the length of his fingers. And then that's like the first of a series of really irreverent photographs that made me confused. Like I didn't <laughs> know for sure what reality was. And, you know, I offer you that because we're, coming up on the election and it's hard to know what reality is these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, by the time this airs, we will know. So, and that's about exactly right. That the cousin would go up now. Exactly. Uh, Marion shared what's making her confused this week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's 8 p.m. in Abu Dhabi. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, and it's high noon here. Uh, so I have I have a kind of like a, a double pronged uh, what's making me happy. Um, I know I've said it on this podcast that I'm addicted to podcasts. 
I am. And those of you who know me personally also know that I have tremendous sleep issues. I have terrible, terrible, terrible. I just can't sleep, um, basically. And so some of the podcasts I listen to are to help me with that. And one of them is um, called Miette's Bedtime Stories. And this um, beautiful woman with an amazing accent reads stories. And it's so nice. Oh, you should see the faces of the people in this room. Everybody's going to be listening to me yet. And um, honestly, I just, I am such a consumer of everything, right? I just consume, consume. I'm reading, listening, reading, listening, consuming all the time. Um, but never has this ever happened to me. She read a story called um, Drowning Doesn't Look Like Drowning by Heather Burrell. Mm did not put me to sleep. It made me go on Amazon and immediately buy the collection. Ooh. Oh, nice. Nice. Oh, my gosh. I am digging this collection of short stories. The collection is called Mad Hope. And um, I'm, I'm just in awe. Every story is as powerful as the one that Miette um, read. And um, it starts with one called Brianna, hmm. Brianna Susan, Susanna Alana. And it reminds me so much of George Saunders' victory lap, which um, a couple of you know means is one of my favorite stories of all time. And uh, this woman is just, she's just, I, I want to contact Heather Burrell and ask her if she has anything for us. Um, and I want you all to read her immediately. So that happened. And that's happening. I'm still reading it right now. <laughs> because I'm saving Bruce Springsteen's memoir till break. Because I want to be able to just like unplug, check out, and read it from the beginning to the end, you know? So, okay. Anything else, anybody? Tasty cake. Tasty cake. <laughs> well, stay tuned for Tasty Cake Reports, PBQ News Feed, social media. I'll have a write up by Friday. Oh, <laughs> Marion, are you still there? I think we may have lost our Abu Dhabi friend. Oh, maybe Jason showed up. <laughs> um, all right. So please follow us on social media. Um, go to our website, pbqmag.org, and check out um, this story and all of our podcasts. Subscribe. Rank us. Send us self-addressed stamped envelopes, and we'll send you stickers. And keep reading. Thank you. Woo!